Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guests are Tomas Alvarez Ballone and Craig Shapiro from Collaborative Fund. Collaborative Fund is an investment firm focused on supporting and investing in the shared future. Their funds center around two macro themes, the growth of the creative class and the concept of the collaborative economy. Now, that being said, I've been seeing them getting more and more active in climate. They're investors in Brimstone, Cloud Agronomics, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, Dandelion, Kula Bio, and a whole bunch more. And they've also come at climate through the food angle. So Beyond Meat and several others in the food category as well. Sweet Green, Square Roots, a bunch of others. And recently, they announced the Shared Future Fund, which provides rapid funding and useful resources to early stage entrepreneurs working to solve the global climate crisis. It's a programmatic fund. And in 2022 alone, they aim to make 100 investments of 100K and to give a decision within 10 days of application. Now, I thought this was interesting and wanted to learn more about it, so I was grateful that Craig and Tomas made the time to come on the show. We cover a lot in this episode, including the origin story of the firm, Collaborative. We talk about the approach, how the approach has evolved over the years, how and when and why they first dipped their toes in the water for climate investing, the types of investments they've made, what type of risk they're comfortable with, what types of criteria they look for, how they think about different sectors, and of course, diligence, which is a challenge in climate since it's not a sector in itself, it's every sector. And we also talk about the Shared Futures Fund, what it is, how it works, its reason for being, its key success criteria, their vision for it, and how it fits in with the other things that they do as a firm. Wonderful discussion, and I'm excited to bring it to you. Craig, Tomas, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. 
Yeah, thanks, Jason. Yeah, well, I'm I'm psyched to have you. It's it's funny. I mean, I've known about collaborative for for years. You know, back when I was doing stuff that had nothing to do with climate, and now I'm three and a half or going on four years into climate and keep bumping up against you guys more and more. And I say bumping up, it's not, I mean, it's not competitive. We're, I mean, we're on several of the same cap tables. We've been sharing leads back and forth, you know, sharing notes when we're trying to learn. And, and it seems like you guys are getting increasingly more active in the space as are we. So I was really excited for the opportunity to have you on. And I have so many questions, but just a chance to learn more about what you're up to and, and how you're thinking about this stuff. Great to be here. And, and we're excited to share more. I think Craig and Brian, tell you a bit more about how we got into climate. Yeah, maybe that's a good place to start. Craig, do you want to just talk a bit about, first of all, just an overview on Collaborative, and then we can get into the climate stuff. Yeah, yeah. Started Collaborative in 2010, and the, the original kind of thesis was that the most interesting opportunities existed at the intersection of for-profit and for-good, that the best and brightest entrepreneurs were increasingly starting businesses that went beyond just a pure profit motive, but wanted to solve an actual problem that was going to improve society and improve people's lives. You know, we're a little over a decade into this. We manage a number of funds. Our flagship fund is our early stage venture fund. We're investing out of our fifth flagship fund. That's a $125 million fund. Yeah. And across those funds and some kind of thematic funds, you know, just on the venture side, we're managing a little over a half a billion dollars. In addition to Tomas and I, you've got a motley crew, mostly in the New York area, but a few of us on the West Coast and scattered. And I'm sure I'm leaving a bunch out, but that's kind of who we are at Collaborative. We think a lot about kind of impact and consumer brands and consumer behavior and climate and sustainability is you're absolutely right, Jason. Like it's an area that is increasingly coming into focus. And so, yeah, we're excited. We recently announced something called Shared Future Fund, which I'm sure we'll get into, but that's one of several kind of things that we're going to be pursuing over the coming weeks and months and hopefully years as we're really excited about this space and the opportunities in front of us. Well, typically we do, you know, kind of overviews and we we chip away at getting to the good stuff, but I'm I'm going to skip a few steps here. I don't know why. I guess I'm I'm feeling crazy, but you mentioned Craig the intersection of for profit and for good and and I'm just curious other than finding companies at this intersection, are there any structural differences that you've done and or that you think are important when doing early stage equity investing at this intersection, for example, source of capital or time horizons or just anything different or is it everything else the same? Yeah, great question. The short answer is mostly no, there's not a ton structurally different. The slightly more nuanced answer is we were very intentional. You know, when I started the firm, you know, I talked a lot about backing companies that were on a mission to create systemic change and how that takes, oftentimes that can take a longer, you know, period of time than what might fit in your traditional venture fund. And I think just being overt about that intention attracted LPs and capital that has a longer term mindset and gives us some flexibility. So structurally, like if you look at our limited partnership agreement, it's kind of plain vanilla, much like most venture firms, but 
you know, for example, our first fund, we've extended beyond the period, the normal period, the 10-year period, because there's still a handful of companies in there that are plugging away. And our LPs have been very flexible because they came in kind of knowing that intention. So, yeah, it's a mixed answer, but, you know, mostly kind of plain vanilla with, you know, I think some thoughtfulness around who we brought into the fold, which gives us a bit of flexibility. And again, I'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead to the juicy stuff right up front, but I have to ask, so if you're backing companies that have this purposeful mission and that comes from the founders and comes from day zero and comes from the expectations you set for LPs and, and stuff like that, but ultimately, given that it's a time box fund, there does need to be liquidity of, of some sort. And the, the two primary ways for that that I know, and I'm no expert. I'm I'm still learning all this stuff as I go, but it's either entering the public markets or getting acquired. Now, if you get acquired, you get acquired by a company that's managing quarter by quarter earnings, right? Assuming they're they're publicly traded. And if you go public, then you're answering to quarter by quarter earnings as a standalone entity. But either way, it's the same that with the best of intent, you get plugged into the bigger machine ultimately. So no matter how noble the intent at the early stage, is the impact gonna be severely handicapped until the broader system gets changed? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I think we're a tiny, tiny gnat in this ecosystem, certainly not one that can solve some of those broader issues. You know, you're right. One thing I would point out as an additional source of liquidity beyond either an IPO or an acquisition is there are opportunities to sell you know, stock once you're in a business for a long period of time to other interested parties. And in some cases, we've sold, you know, shares in companies that we're invested in to really long-term holders. Think of an endowment or even a private foundation who really believes in that mission, but understands the constraints of a venture fund. And in some cases, like the founders are, are really supportive of that. You know, so without disclosing too much one of Collaborative's largest investors is an endowment, and they've been a, a willing kind of participant and partner along that journey. So you're right at a very, very high level, but I think there are there's emerging alternatives that help solve for some of those structural issues. The only other thing I would say is like I don't necessarily subscribe to the public markets and quarterly earnings as being antithetical to for good. You know, I mean, we, through acquisition, we acquired shares in Etsy, for example, and they've performed really well in the public markets. And I don't think it's come at the expense of their long-term mission. And so, yeah, there's parts of capitalism that I, you know, that I think are suboptimal, but I don't think it necessarily severely handicaps. I think that's how you described it. I wouldn't describe it that way necessarily. In some cases it does, but in others, you know, I look at a company like Tesla, in some ways I almost think they benefit from being a public company because there's a lot of interest in the company. So yeah, it's an interesting conversation. Well, one more big picture question, then we can switch gears to Collaborative. And also, Tomas, I'm asking a bunch of Craig questions to start, but I have a ton of questions for you. Do not worry. But Craig, when it comes to B Corps, ESG, like things that are essentially trying to incorporate these principles in a 
dedicated way. I'm just curious your thoughts about those, given that overall the system needs to change. So by siloing these off, is it helpful or does it get in the way of broader systems change? Yeah, great question. We, I think, have largely sat out the impact measurement discussion. I'm a huge fan of the B-Lab team and have known them you know, for a very, very long time. And we've invested in a bunch of B Corps and public benefit corporations. But at a high level, I don't think that there is an effective measuring stick for impact that exists today. It's too subjective. It differs based on what stage you're talking about. And it is polarizing. People have really strong beliefs. We saw the spat recently between Elon Musk and Tesla being kicked out of the ESG index. And it's like, ah, what a waste of everybody's time. I think it comes with good intentions. But from collaborative's perspective, we view kind of that intersection of for-profit and for-good through our own lens. Like, we're like, are we proud of what this company is going to do in the world? And if so, like, we don't really care what other people think, honestly. And so... Yeah, people are not investing in collaborative because they want us to adhere to a very specific rubric to measure the impact. They trust our judgment in backing companies that are pushing the world forward through a lens that is, you know, self-diagnosed, if that makes sense. Yeah, just to, to chime in there, you know, I think within climate and, and measuring impact, a lot of funds have gone the gigaton route, right? Where they're going to say, we're only going to make an investment where you can clearly demonstrate either a gigaton impact or have a gigaton impact. I think we use that as a benchmark that's really useful when we think about companies. But there are plenty of others that are contributing to a climate positive world that might be focused on biodiversity diversity or the circular economy that don't have such a clear measurement of emissions and yet will have a massive impact. And so I think we, we like to take these frameworks as frameworks and not as strict guidelines that will constrain some of the investments that we're really excited about and that we know will help transform the world we live in. Uh-huh. And you've talked about impact in a you know subjective way of are are you proud of it and you know versus just strictly gigatons or something like that. And and I get that. I mean we're we're similar at, at MCJ at least at least so far. One question that I have is Climate aside, how have you thought about sectors? How have you thought about bits versus atoms? How have you thought about risk? So things like science risk, things like capital intensity. I mean, are there are there screens or filters that you use there or, or is it the Wild West? Not to come across as being contrarian, but I think about any of those filtering mechanisms as mostly being counterproductive. You know, it's... I think venture capital is such an, like, uh, it's a career in uncertainty. I mean, I was thinking about this. It's the only asset class where, as a manager, you're raising money for things that don't exist yet. That's a weird thing. You know, if you're raising money for real estate, you can point to buildings. If you're raising money for public stocks, like a hedge fund, you can speak to the companies. For venture capital, you're like, we're going to invest in people that are working on things that they don't even know about yet today. It's an odd thing. And so what I think that creates is like a vacuum of uncertainty. And a lot of us in this community want certainty. So it's like, well, if we just 
if we only invest in software, you know, bits versus atoms, if we if we only do certain stage, if we only do, you know, then it feels like we're more in control. But I almost think like that's the opposite approach. It's like when everybody said, don't invest in food, it's too hard in the supply chain and it's never going to be venture scale. Guess what? Like we invested in food. When everybody said like, oh, what are you guys deep tech? Like you don't, you know, why, why would you invest in that? You don't have a, you know, X, Y, or Z credential. We were like, great, let's start looking at deep tech. Like it's sometimes the best opportunities don't fit a certain narrative. And so keeping a really open mind in terms of the types of things that we can support has been, you know, I'm sure in some ways, you know, an Achilles heel, but in other ways, in my mind, I think a big advantage. So, you know, it's something that we talk about actively as a team, which is why I wanted to get out ahead of Tomas on this answer, because there are things I don't mean, I don't mean to make it sound like we're just like, hey, oh, cool, you, you know, let's look at everything under the sun. But I try to resist, like, that's been something that I'm kind of proud of actually as a firm is that we will oftentimes kind of break the rules, whether it be ownership amounts or sectors, like when everybody is saying like, this is the right way to do something. I think it's oftentimes probably not. And you mentioned that the early stage is kind of the flagship or the core from that vehicle. Typically, what stage are you coming in what check size range and what percentage of those are you leading and taking board seats? It's evolved over time. So when we first got started, we were writing smaller checks, you know, 100 to 200K checks in lots of different companies. You know, Fund 2 kind of, you know, started the evolution towards slightly larger text checks, you know, a bit more concentrated. Fast forward to today, we're making, you know, much fewer bets, much more concentrated. Average initial check size is between one to two and a half million dollars. We're usually investing in their first kind of call it institutional round. You know, people sometimes call it a seed, seed plus, in some cases, even a series A. And we're not ownership obsessed, but we do. We like to be have meaningful ownership because we're trying to be pretty active a lot of times, I don't think board seats make sense, you know, when when first kind of investing at the seed stage, but we're open to it. And in some cases, we'll take a board seat. In lots of cases, we don't. So yeah, there's not a one size fits all. But I would say, what about leading setting terms? We like to lead and we like to set terms. We don't have to. But I think, you know, we as a firm like to make independent decisions. I think one of our few advantages is speed. And so if we see something we like, we'll price it and put a term sheet down. And that's our, if you said, hey, Craig, here's a magic wand. Here's a great opportunity. Like our, our idea would be to, to price it and set the terms and lead it. Uh-huh. And so a few more collaborative specific questions, and then we'll get into the Tomas show when it comes to the shared future fund. But from a collaborative standpoint, when did climate first show up on the radar and what were some of the first steps that you did? Not necessarily first investment you made, but first steps you did once you started thinking about it that started moving you towards action of any sort. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I've said kind of in the past jokingly, but I think it's there's a element of truth to it, is that food was kind of a gateway drug for us into climate. That, you know, our early 
investments in sweet green, in Beyond Meat, in Ripple Foods, and others were really just the like the start of what ultimately pulled us much deeper into the space. And from kind of the consumer side of it, we then started to understand, you know, sourcing and supply chain and agriculture. And then, you know, that pulled us even further. And so, you know, it's likely, I don't know, the investment in Sweetgreen and whenever 2013, something like that, that like I really started to think about, you know, the impact that our food system was having on the broader, you know, climate arena and that you know that encouraged us to start to think about other food investments and you know agriculture i remember when we invested in ripple foods one of the key things that they touted was how much less water you know and how at the time almond milk was a thing still is but like the alternative was all almond milk and it was like well almonds consume so much water so like that's kind of what started us down this path and then you know from food and agriculture we we got pulled into kind of, you know, decarbonization. We took a kind of, at, at the time, a crazy bet in a Google X spin out called Dandelion Energy. And we led their seed round and I got to know Kathy and everybody, by the way, everybody was like, you're crazy to do, what do you know about geothermal? Like, what, what are you doing? And it was through that, that we learned and got exposed. And that led us to make another geothermal investment spin out from MIT called Quaze and so it's like one, you know, these things are dominoes that kind of like, you know, pull us further into, you know, have pulled us further into the climate and sustainability world. And historically, has climate essentially just been another area of exploration that fits neatly into the focus of the early stage vehicle? Or has it been separate and distinct within the firm? Yeah, great question. Historically, it was just one of the kind of key areas within our broader focus. Like we, our early stage kind of flagship fund is more of a generalist fund with climate and sustainability just being one of the areas of interest. But I would say just within the last, call it 18 to 24 months, there's been an increased interest. And in fact, and you know, I think you and I talked about this, but some of our LPs in particular have said, hey, Craig, like, we're really interested in, in more exposure. And so that's what has led us to creating dedicated vehicles. We recently launched something called Shared Future Fund, which is, you know, from a capital perspective, a subset of our LPs basically said, like, hey, we want a lot more exposure to this area. And that, and that led us to kind of brainstorm and think of ways to do it outside of our flagship fund. And so... If you start in the early stage, there's different ways that you could go. You could pile money into follow-on rounds of the breakout companies there, or you could go earlier. How have you thought about that as a firm? And then, of course, we can get into the Shared Future Fund specifically. Yeah, I think earlier is better. And I don't say that like as a general rule, but for, for me and for us as a firm, I think generally we, we really prefer and enjoy things at their earliest stage because it's messy, you know, it's more creative and it's, it's like a scrum, you know, it's a game of pickup soccer. And that's when you kind of are figuring stuff out and that's when it's most fun, you know? So as our fund size has grown, you know, it's a little bit tougher for us to figure out how to deploy capital 
at the earlier stages, but that's one we like, you know, again, like if, if you said, Hey, Craig, here's a magic wand, it would be, you know, meeting founders kind of, you know, day zero or, or certainly very early in their journey. And so we have a chance to really collaborate with them. And this speaks to, and uh, you know, I'll, I don't want to, I promise not to belabor this, but that notion of the intersection of for profit and for good, there's so many learnings that we've accumulated over, you know, almost 12 years of what some companies have done that has worked really well and what some companies have done that hasn't. And so being able to share those learnings, like when the ball of clay is still in its most malleable state is usually where we can have the most impact. So Tomas, finally, we get to Tomas, but maybe talk a bit about the Shared Future Fund and what it is, but also talk about your journey to getting into climate work and to getting to collaborative in the first place. Yeah, I'll, I'll briefly share a bit of how I got here and why I'm working on, on Shared Future with Craig. So my climate journey really started back in undergrad. I started to take energy classes, more from a security perspective. I, I went to Georgetown, and that's kind of the lens that, that the university sees the world through for the most part. And I increasingly realized that energy was both a massive opportunity and, and a big geopolitical risk. And, and that's obviously very clear today with the Ukraine and Russia war and what that's revealed about our lives and our economy. I left Georgetown realizing that I need to understand businesses better, that businesses were one of the most important levers to solve the energy crisis. And I went to Bain & Company, where I was a management consultant for a couple of years. And it was really neat because on the one hand, I got to do sustainability work, helping some of the largest real estate companies in the world thinking about how they could offer sustainability products, not just get to net zero. But at the same time, I was working with mining companies. And, and that contrast, I think, made me realize that if I really wanted to work in climate, I, I needed to do that full time. As a result of that, I decided to, to take a step back. I was very lucky to get the Schwartzman Scholarship, which is a year in China. Because of the pandemic, I, I ended up doing it remotely and actually spent a ton of time in Costa Rica in this paradise of a rainforest where I really got to tangibly interact with the nature and the world that you know I... I want to protect. A lot of folks in climate say, hey, I'm, I'm in this for my children. I'm in climate for myself. You know, selfishly, I want to be able to go for, for a walk. I also want to not boil life. You know, we're, we're in a drought here in California. And, and so I work on climate for myself and, and being in Costa Rica really crystallized that for me. I also had a chance to, to write a thesis on recycling electronic waste and solar panels and, and realized there are these massive problems that, you know, need s- systemic change. And then went down this rabbit hole where we, we ended up founding a carbon accounting startup. We were focused on the crypto industry. Specifically, this was right around the time that Elon Musk was, was tweeting about accepting Bitcoin to purchase Tesla cars and then saying a couple days later, actually, it's, it's not sustainable. And so it was a really interesting time to, to start the company. We went through Y Combinator and, and learned a ton, but ultimately realized that, that we were too early for the market. And obviously, you know, folks in crypto today are, are experiencing a lot of a lot of pain. But one of the takeaways for me was that actually good information is really important for the market to kind of accept solutions around carbon accounting, carbon pricing, carbon removal solutions in general. But also that as a founder, you need to hit the, the wave at the right time. And we were a bit early. 
I then started working with Kim and Sophie, who are the, the founders of Climate Tech VC, a newsletter that reports on deals in, in the industry. And they're very connected with Craig and, and the collaborative ecosystem. And so Craig was just helping to launch a series of climate initiatives that you know we've announced and, and are going to announce in the coming weeks. And so it was a perfect opportunity for me to join. And you know, very quickly, Craig and I started to, to think about what to do with the interest that we were getting from, from our LPs that were saying, we want more exposure to climate. We want to provide catalytic capital. And you know, we, we want to develop it as quickly as possible because there's you know, a timeline that we have a, a carbon budget and, and we need to hit it and we need the best solutions to scale quickly. And so really, that's where I think Craig got the idea for Shared Future, which is a fund that is meant to be programmatic. It's meant to provide catalytic capital very quickly to founders. And so right now we're deploying $100,000 checks via uncapped safes into 100 companies this year. So in total, it's a, about a $10 million fund. And you know, we think about how shared future is going to evolve in a couple of different phases. You know, the, the phase we want to get to and what really excites us is one in which shared future is open to any founder to apply, right? And to say, hey, I'm working on climate, I'm going to hit that apply button and within 10 days hear back and, and get funded if I'm accepted. The way we're going to get there is actually by going through a beta phase, which is what we're in now. And so the beta phase means that we've partnered with Activate and Activate Fellows Program and Y Combinator to fund this year's batches to say, hey, if you're a climate startup and you're in one of those programs, then you're eligible for shared future funding. And in the coming years, we're going to expand that eligibility pool until we get to that end state where folks can apply. Again, the, the, the vision here really is to provide very early catalytic capital. And that's kind of on the, on the front end. On the back end, it's to create a network of networks, both of founders and of innovation hubs and of supporters. We, know, we have Sweetgreen, the Goldhurst Foundation, and, and Banff Advisors that are part of the collaborative coalition. And so we want to bring together all these folks to, to help each other solve the biggest problems in climate and obviously to scale. Great. And so the $10 million that you mentioned, is, is that a dedicated vehicle? Yeah, it is. And we're going to deploy that in 2022 and the divisions that we're going to continue to kind of expand that in the coming years. And, and that's part of the conversation that we're having now with LPs with, within the firm internally. But we've been really blessed by the amount of interest that, that's come from both founders and you know folks that aren't even LPs today that are saying we want to participate in this. And, and so you know we think that this is just the, the start of the journey for Shared Future. Uh-huh. And when you think about that shared future as a firm, do you put the same pressure on it from a return standpoint that you do for the other pools of capital that you're investing, or does it have a different job within the firm? It does have a slightly different vision and, and kind of the way that we think about it is, and I think the way that our LPs think about it today is to really provide catalytic capital, right? And, and so if you look at the spectrum of impact investing to pure capitalist investing, I would say this is slightly more towards the impact investing side of the spectrum than where collaborative sits, though it still is you know, a traditional investing investment fund and we are providing uncapped safes, not grants. At the same time, you know, we, we think that that's important because we want to participate in the growth of these companies. We want the fund to grow over time. And, and so you know, we want to have a mechanism to be able to reinvest those funds and to return those funds to, to the folks that you know, believed in, in the companies from the start. So that's kind of how we think about it. 
it is a separate vehicle than Collaborative's you know, seed stage fund. And so there are opportunities and moments in which we may cross-pollinate and invest from both. But, but the way that we make those investment decisions is completely separate. Yeah. And just one quick note is, you know, Jason, just to kind of cut right to the heart of it, it is, as Tomas mentioned, it's, it's separate. The largest investor in it, you know, has a, a mandate to invest in climate and not for profit necessarily. So it gave us a ton of flexibility to think about how to structure it. And in fact, we haven't really shared this, but like initially we thought about running just a pure grant program. We were thinking like, geez, that might be kind of fun. And, you know, we were inspired by Fast Grants, this, you know, nonprofit initiative where they, you know, they got money into the hands of scientists really, really quickly. And so we studied that a bit. Ultimately, for reasons that are kind of boring, we decided to go the uncapped safe route, which was clean, simple, and like enabled us to get money into the hands of for-profit businesses at the earliest stage, which is where we think the biggest impact is going to come from. So, you know, just that gives you a sense of like return profile wise, there's a lot less pressure on shared future fund. Not to say that we're not excited for, you know, financial returns or don't believe that it, it will generate great financial returns. In fact, quite the opposite. But the pool of capital, which again is just a subset of our existing LPs, you know, has a slightly different you know, view or mandate as it relates to, you know, their investment through a shared future fund, if that makes sense. Yeah. So did you worry at all before you launched this that the broader group of LPs that are not participating in this vehicle would be concerned that this is a distraction or taking your eye off the ball as a firm? And if so, how did you address that or how would you address it if it came up? Yeah. I mean, we've done so many things, Jason, that, you know, causes people to scratch their heads. I mean, we in 2016, we launched a thematic fund around, you know, kids and we teamed up with Sesame Street. You know, we got a lot of the same questions like, is, you know, are there really investable opportunities? Is that like a venture backable space? Is this a distraction? Some of which came from our LPs, most of which didn't. I would say our LPs, we're... If you said, like, you know, what are you most grateful for? We've got a really special group of, you know, backers who, you know, have given us a long leash. And, you know, I think our returns have enabled us to extend that leash. And so, you know, there's a lot of trust built in. Like that that dedicated vehicle, you know, in the kids space has already returned over three times people's money and is well on its way to do a multiple of that. And so, you know, I think a lot of times counterintuitively, the things that you might think could be a distraction or not generate returns, you know, may end up being the thing that that really goes on to, you know, produce alpha. Like in that in that kid space, we invested originally into a company called OutSchool, you know, that started gaining some traction. And as Tomas said, out of our flagship fund, we kind of doubled down and, you know, that was the seed seed round, which, you know, most recently, you know, raised at a multi-billion dollar valuation. And so I do think of shared future as a breeding ground for potential investments from, you know, other other vehicles and as being accretive to the overall effort. 
Uh huh. And so when you think about, for example, if there's two scenarios, one scenario is the shared future in a programmatic way ends up producing great returns, but doesn't see any follow-on from, from the core early stage vehicle, or the other is it produces crappy returns, or I guess I guess this isn't a, a viable scenario because if it produced crappy returns, would, would it really produce follow-on investments? But just for sake of argument, let's say it produced less stellar returns, but you wrote five checks from the core fund and companies that were found in, in that. What's a better outcome for the firm? I think that the best outcome for the firm is that both shared future fund and our core fund, you know, kind of are able to support these companies throughout their journey. As an entrepreneur myself, it never totally made sense to me that, you know, you have to kind of like date new investors at each new round. And so why can't a partner like Collaborative, which is, you know, backing you because they believe in your mission, you know, be with you at day zero, but also, you know, potentially, you know, support you at the seed round, at the series A, and beyond. And we do, we have a opportunity fund. We've launched later stage vehicles to support companies through their series B, C, D, and beyond. So, you know, we're not there yet. We have so much work to do, but I really, I hope that we can build a platform that can be more of a life cycle investor that can support these companies kind of throughout their journey and not just like, hey, we led your seed round, best of luck, you know, we'll make some introductions at the series A and like we get the markup and like we're good, we're out. Like that doesn't doesn't make sense to me as an entrepreneur. As an investor, I understand it, but as an entrepreneur, I don't, I don't know, we'll see, you know, just to speak very plainly about returns, we'll see, you know, how things shape up. One thing I should mention is that part of Shared Future's Part of the genesis behind Shared Future is a bet on this cohort or this vintage, you know, something that people talk about in the venture world, which before getting into venture, I was like, vintage? What the hell is that? Like, but it's like people talk, oh, that's a 2014 vintage. That's a, you know, 2016 vintage. We think that this vintage of climate is going to be very successful because we're seeing the amount of talent that's migrating into climate right now and sustainability is like nothing I've ever seen, you know, over the 12 years of investing professionally. And so this gives us almost like an index fund approach. It's almost like, hey, we want to have maximal exposure to the 2022 vintage. And as Tomas said, we're going to be raising new shared future funds if we're successful, you know, each year. So it's going to be shared future fund 2023, Shared Future Fund 2024, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. So it's like a traditional fund structure, but with a one-year deployment period, essentially? Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh-huh. And are there any kind of rights, like right of first refusal for you know for the core or anything like that? Or, or is it only just earned through the goodwill and the help that's facilitated from the, I almost called it a grant, but from the check, from the Shared Future check to going out for the traditional seed round? Yeah, it's the latter. There's no strings attached. There's no rights. We did at the request of YC, we attached an MFN. And in fact, I think we're doing that with Activate as well, because they wanted to make sure that entrepreneurs are aligned as they're going out to raise additional safe notes or price rounds that, you know, this kind of catalytic capital gets the benefit so that just means like if, if someone else comes in with a cap, given that you're uncapped, that you just level out to that same cap. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, that, that makes sense. I think, you know, to, to your point about the goodwill here, right? Like we definitely are putting in work on the back end to support founders. We you know, do office hours. We're building resources that they can use very tactically. We, I think most importantly, are, are truly trying to foster the, the connections between each of these quote-unquote batches that, that is coming into shared future to truly make this network of networks where folks can find help. And, and, you know, I think YC internally does a good job of that. You know, a lot of folks that have gone through it, we think that's the best part of YC. And, and that's something that we definitely want to replicate in, in shared future. And we're already starting to see that with folks showing up to office hours, to events, pinging each other kind of in, in our communication channels to help each other. And, and that's really, really inspiring. And so we hope that that's part of the reason why folks are going to be excited to join shared future moving forward. The other the reason we, we think this is the right moment for the fund is obviously the fundraising environment has changed radically from when I joined Venture just a few months ago. And so we hope that by being first check in, we can help prove some traction and help folks accelerate that. And so, you know, while we, you know, when other investors ping us and say, hey, you invested in, in this shared future company, like what's your diligence? Don't necessarily have that because it is programmatic by nature. We do do a lot to support those companies succeed and scale and, and build. So can any company from YC or Activate in these cohorts automatically qualify? Any climate company within Y Combinator for this year currently qualifies. You know, we work with YC to define what the boundaries of, of a climate company is. With Activate, the way we've structured it is companies go through what is essentially a 24-month program. At a certain point, they graduate, and, and graduation for them means hitting certain milestones. You know, maybe that's having a business plan. Maybe that's having a first customer. It, it's specific to each company. And so we work with the managing directors of Activate to say, hey, once a company has met those milestones, they are then eligible for shared future funding. Of course, you know, we then do our, our diligence to make sure that there, that there aren't any red flags and, and that we can fund the business. But the idea is that, you know, this moves very, very quickly. So for this year, that's how we're thinking about it. Obviously, as we expand the, the application pool, the criteria will have to become more specific and evolve over time. That's a model that, that's still developing. So are you just drafting behind whatever YC calls a climate company or do you have your own set of criteria? And in, in either of those directions, what defines a climate company? Yeah, that, that's obviously the, the million dollar question for everyone. Look, today we've done one, one batch. So we've invested in 22 companies at YC. And we feel very confident that all of those are tackling a core climate problem that will have, at a minimum, a significant reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, if not additional co-benefits, right? So that is, at the most basic level, how we're thinking about the criteria. As we see more edge cases, we will define the criteria more specifically. But, but that's actually, Jason, a, a big reason why we started with the beta mode now versus going public and, and open from day one, because it is really interesting. And there are so many discussions about you know, what exactly is a climate company. You know, there, there's an issue that Climate Tech VC put out a few weeks ago that was talking about this company in the methane space that, that's helping to prevent flaring and, and using it to mine Bitcoin. Is that a climate company if you're helping to reduce emissions but still producing emissions? It's very interesting. And so we're in the learning phase now. We are building this startup as we go. And so we're excited that, that everyone that joins Shared Future understands that, both on the LP side, on the company side, and that collaborative internally and is willing to develop that over time. 
And given that the feedback loops in venture are so long or slow or whatever the right word is, and given that this is a beta phase, I would assume that you would hope that you'd leave beta phase before the venture feedback loops bring real data back around. So have you defined what success looks like and in what time frame are you evaluating in this beta phase that you're in? Yeah, and that's part of the conversation we're having now. I think the way that we think about it is 2022, let's get the foundation right. Let's understand how to fund companies, how to do it quickly. Let's understand how to set up the right partnerships. So those were the goals for this year. I think we're on track for that. The goal for 2023 is to start to open up the application pool. You know, that might mean adding a few accelerators to our list of companies. It might mean adding a few advisors to help us evaluate applications as they come in. It might also mean doing a, a you know, small launch that's open to the public to test it out and then see which model works. But I think that the goal here is that 2023 is going to see a step change in the kind of eligibility for shared future. And that by truly 2024, we are hitting a fully open programmatic model. You know, assuming that that is viable and that that is something that is best for the companies. And, and so that's what we're working towards. But we're learning along the way, just like, you know, MCJ, I think, has, has evolved since it was started and, and you guys started making investments. We continuously implement that that feedback loop. And so you're you're absolutely right. We're you know not going to wait for a seven year time horizon to make changes. We're doing that constantly. And I think that's part of the reason why Shared Future is exciting is because it's it's dynamic. It's going to change. It's going to evolve. And everyone is involved in that conversation. I think one thing to point out is the feedback loops are really long from a financial returns perspective, I mean, crazy long, but actually I think some of the like early indicators of success, you know, from investing within six months, you know, I can give you a call and say, yeah, you know, how do you think this is, this company is doing? Have you enjoyed working with them? Are they pushing things in a good direction? Are they able to, you know, hire good talent? Like, and so I think we'll know, you know, part of what we're planning on is, you know, around Thanksgiving of this year to sit down, and take a hard look in the mirror and just say, like, how's it going? And, you know, on that spectrum of like, what are the criteria? How are we defining, you know, what is a climate company? You know, we are we're, we're we are leveraging kind of these, you know, early partnerships, YC and Activate. But I do think like our bias, again, this goes back to your earlier questions, is to be a bit more open and not, you know, too dogmatic about trying to, you know, like I'd rather us err on the side of like, hey, they're trying to do something that pushes the world forward. Like, let's, you know, I'd rather be like in hindsight, you know what, that probably shouldn't have been in it as opposed to like a real strict criteria. I think the rubber will meet the road when we when we do get more towards, you know, true programmatic funding where anybody can apply and like, you know, we're having to sort through that. But as it exists today, it's, you know, we're trying to be almost intentionally, you know, open minded as it relates to this. And so if you look at the job that a YC or an Activate is doing for you in this beta phase, I mean, I, I know it's like a blankie, but like, 
what is it about having the, like, what are they a blankie for? Like which aspect? And then in order to get to the open phase, which it sounds like is, is where your passion lies. Like, what is it that you need to learn or need to build out or need to understand that doesn't exist today that would give you the confidence that it's time to spread your wings, leave the nest. (laughs) I'm happy to give it a shot. I think that's a great framing, like the blankie. I think YC does a great job, you know, and Tomas having gone through it, they've gotten very good at asking questions. Like the reason I think part of the reason that they're so successful is that their screening is quite good. And so the application process really probes it. You know, it's not just like, where did you go to school? And, you know, how long have you been working on this? But it really, I think they ask the right questions. And Elon and team at Activate, I just think some of his experience is really unique. And I think they've created a brand that serves as a beacon for a certain type of scientist who, you know, is working on projects, you know, and wants to kind of explore a commercialization path. I don't think we have those muscles yet. Like, I don't know that we know which questions to ask. So it, it kind of helped us, you know, give us training wheels or almost skip a step in the process and deploy capital sooner rather than later. But in the background, we are, we're, we're starting to think through what are the questions that we have to ask that will enable us to, you know, make decisions really, really quickly and, you know, with the least amount of human intervention or reveal. And some of that may be related to impact. You know, Tomas has mentioned the gigaton measurement. Some of it's going to be business model related, like at scale, what are your unit economics look like? Like, how do you make money? Who pays for this? And some of it's going to be about the person and really understanding what motivates them and, you know, what, what, what brought them to, you know, devoting their life to this. So I think it's a question problem that we have to solve in order to get to a true kind of programmatic style effort. And, you know, that's where I, I do, you know, we feel like, you know, YC has honed that pretty well and activate in a different way, but, you know, certainly has attracted incredible talent. Well, and, and what I was going to say is, Jason, I think at the, at the simplest level, and this truly is oversimplifying what are two incredible institution, right? But I think the reason we're excited about YC is they do a fantastic job of attracting and identifying great talent. I think what Activate has done a great job of, in addition to talent, is identifying incredible technology, right? They, they have a deep bench of folks looking at this. And so that's kind of why we, we took both of these organizations as partnerships to, to begin with. And now there's a question of you know, how do we ask ourselves some of those same questions? How do we augment what they are doing? But we definitely see these as kind of two-way partnerships where we then help their companies succeed and grow over time, and less so as us kind of purely outsourcing the diligence work that we otherwise would have done. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, there are moments when we do kind of invest from our traditional uh, early stage fund as well. So we, we do put in that work on, on the back end. So I think the, the questions here fundamentally for, for Share Future is like, how do you scale what is a you know, traditional diligence model at the very early stages of climate to an order of magnitude more of companies in less time? 
So there's almost like a softer question that we need to ask of like, what data points do we need in order to accelerate that and still make, you know, 80% of the time the right decision? And I know there's 10-day turnaround. I, th- I think that's what I read. But are you actually talking to these founders? Are, are they walking you through a deck? Or are you asking your own questions? Or is it more of a checkbox? Yeah, so right now, what we ask founders to do is to fill out an application where you know they talk a little bit about the company and what they're doing. As I mentioned, we're also talking to them on the side for our kind of traditional early stage fund. So those kind of happen in parallel, but the, the shared future application truly is kind of a written application. You know, we also obviously are talking to at Activate the managing directors or at YC Gustav. And so we have several data points. And as long as they meet the criteria, we are ready to fund those companies in those 10 days. And you know, we say 10 days, we actually are funding companies in a significantly shorter amount of time as the summer or sorry, the, the winter 22 YC batch showed. And so 10 days is kind of the the long time we, we give, even though that that's still really short. Have there been circumstances where either you've said no to companies that meet your stated criteria or that you wish you could? I think that we so far have funded every company that has applied because they have met the criteria. And you know, I think in this earliest stage, and truly that was the first 30 companies that, that we funded, the goal was to learn. We wanted to make sure that we took the most open view possible. We haven't had folks that we you know funded but wanted to say no to. I think that the rationale for that would have been to say, hey, there's a red flag and, and we cannot invest. That doesn't mean that there are companies that we looked at from our traditional fund and said, hey, maybe that's not an investment that's right for collaborative right now. And, and so that's obviously a conversation that we navigate with founders where you know, we say, hey, we, we, we're going to support you from the shared future side, but maybe collaborative's you know, seed fund can invest now. And I think initially we were kind of concerned about, hey, how are founders going to react to that? The reactions have been super positive. You know, folks say, hey, thank you so much. We're excited to participate in this program and to stay in touch for, for future rounds. And so I think we, we're finding a way to navigate that. But it's, it's certainly a conversation that we are open and transparent with. So one question that that just brings up for me is you talked about the muscles that you're building on the programmatic side, but you also hope that at least some of these companies will graduate and become core investments. And you're looking across so many sectors and types of companies and geography is, is another thing I didn't ask about, but a lot of things, even if it's just North America, which maybe it's global, right? But it's already a lot of things before you even get to the geography piece. So if you're trying to lead and trying to set terms and trying to be that conviction capital at the true seed, how do you diligence? Because, you know, there is no blankie for that. (laughs) It's so good. I think, listen, my hunch is collaborative's kind of core seed fund or flagship fund will end up investing in a relatively small number of the shared future portfolio companies. It's intuitive from the outside to try to link the two because it's like a venture capital firm. So I think, you know, we had somebody say to me the other day, oh, like I heard about your new scout program. And I was like, wait, what? We don't have a scout program. But it, it actually made me think like, oh, that's what the people might have that perception that, that that's what the goal is for us to create a pipeline, you know, and in some ways that gets me excited, like it gets us exposed. But I do think of them very independently and discreetly from one another. Like I, for a shared future fund to be successful, it has to work in its own right. This isn't just like, 
you know, hey, we raised a very large fund. Let's carve out a small portion of it and sprinkle it into a bunch of things and see what germinates. This is a dedicated vehicle with goals that extend beyond just purely financial goals, but more like how do we catalyze just more people working on climate? So when we look at the success metrics, it's, you know, it needs to be sustainable from a financial perspective, i.e. generate returns. But it's, you know, when we evaluate it, it's not like, well, how many of these turned into or translated into collaborative core investments? If none of them do, I still think this could go on to be a, a huge success. And I also do think in like in this environment where the economy is really volatile and raising money is increasingly becoming challenging. It makes me even more proud to have a vehicle where people can just like fill out a simple application and get money within 10 days. I'm just like, man, like that, you know, some of that initial capital. Now, one could argue like if they've already gotten accepted to YC or activate, you know, how difficult is it for them to raise additional capital, which is why I'm so eager for us to get beyond just those two beta partners, because I do think it's like, it's the random team that may be at a university lab or maybe going through a lesser known accelerator or may just be like getting started. And that first hundred K can be meaningful. You know, it, it can enable that one additional hire or, you know, give you the confidence to quit your job, hire the lawyer, you know, get your documents in order, like whatever it is. I think that that's, you know, very separate from our early stage fund where like if there's deep interest in a specific area, we're going to go heavy into it and try to lead. And that may come from something that we funded in shared future, but it, it, it may not. And in, in most likelihood, it, you know, I don't know. We'll see. And when you look at this beta phase that you're in, what would be helpful to you? Who do you want to hear from? It, I mean, I would imagine it, it might be hard to hear from companies if, if they aren't part of YC or, or Activate, but are there companies or subject matter experts? You mentioned diligence is something you're wrestling with. Like what, what message do you want to leave listeners with and who might you want to hear from, if anybody? Yeah, I think there, there are a bunch of folks. So one is, if you're a company, we want to hear from you. We want to understand what are your capital needs? You know, where are you looking for funding today? And by the way, if you want to talk to our early stage team, you know, that's obviously something that, that we're excited about as well. The second is, if you're an expert in a field like carbon removal, if you sit on boards that help other folks diligence and, and understand and select who the best companies are, we're learning about that ourselves. And so we, we want to hear from you. And the third is if you're an innovation hub, say you work at Third Derivative, folks that we're in touch with now, or at any of these other incredible accelerators that are identifying talent, and you think you could be a potential partner for Shared Future, please do reach out for us. And then finally, if you're excited about the program and, and just want to chat, you know, we're here. And so you can shoot us an email. I'm Tomas at collaborativefund.com, and we'll be there. So we're here to have the conversation. We're here to learn, and we're here to grow. And guys, anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words? No, the only thing I would add to Tomas there, and I think it's a great question, Jason, as to who we want to hear from, like we're learning as we're doing this. And so if anybody is listening, to this has ideas on how we can improve it, make it more valuable, more successful, and most importantly, make the companies that we're backing more successful, like we'd love to, we'd love to connect. And, you know, I do think... Tomas touched on this very briefly earlier, but it's worth maybe spending 20 seconds on, 
we were deliberate about inviting the Goldhurst Foundation, Sweetgreen, and BAMP advisors in as kind of a original, call it founding partners. And the reason we chose those three was because one of them knows a lot about non-dilutive capital, which we think is going to play a key role for a lot of these companies as they scale. One of them is a potential customer. Sweetgreen has stated that they want to be carbon neutral by 2027. And so they're looking for solutions to help them achieve that goal. And we think customer introductions are really valuable. And BAMP Advisors is great at helping identify and source talent. And we also think that's a key pain point for, you know, a lot of these early founders. It's like, how do we hire the, our first business lead or somebody to head up sales or, you know, somebody who really understands how to navigate the regulatory environment? And so it's like, it's talent, it's capital, and it's customer intros. And so if you think you can help us accelerate in any of those areas, like we chose those three because we are close with those folks and we like them and trust them. But, you know, our hope is to grow that coalition into a broader set of folks that are all kind of pushing this forward. So, yeah, that's, that's the only thing I would add. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys. I think it's awesome what you're doing. I, I love the iterative approach and the the mission-oriented nature of it. And I'm, I'm psyched that we're co-investors in several companies together and hope to do a bunch more with you. So thanks again for coming on the show and excited to see where this goes. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, Jason, you're the best. And congrats on everything on your side too. And we're hoping that we can co-invest with you in a bunch more stuff too. So appreciate you doing this. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.